Today, we're talking to former VP of engineering at Twilio and former Googler, Joe Lynch, about life and leadership. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, and all them came out of gospel and blues sort of mixed together. Hey, Joel. Hey, buddy. How are you? Good. How are you? You're talking about music. Yeah. Do you play music? Do you make music? Yeah, I play um, I play the guitar and sing. I, I Mostly I like to sing. And so I play the guitar and can fake a little bit on the piano, mostly to accompany my voice. Okay. So, what type of music do you sing? I'll play like acoustic blues, um, like Ooh. blues that goes back to like the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then just some other soul music, folk mm-hmm. tunes, things like that. Mostly stuff that was written well before I was born. I saw uh, John Mayer and B.B. King do a set together, and that oh, made beautiful. me fall in love with blues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen B.B. King probably eight times or something before he passed away. He used yeah. to come to a theater that's pretty close to me called the Keswick Theater. Mm. I love B.B. King. Yeah, and he used to play with um, Bobby Bland, who was my favorite blues singer that ever lived. They grew up together, actually, in, uh, I think it was in Memphis, where Beale Street, Beale Street is in Memphis, isn't it? We're going to say yes. We'll have yeah, fact let's, checkers. Let's go for yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you were at Google. Tell me a little bit about what you did there. Yeah. I went to Google because I was starting to get, I got more and more experience. I had my previous role before that, I was the CTO at a tech startup and building systems at scale, at a scale that I wasn't used to. I thought was exciting, learning a lot about distributed systems. But I wanted to have that feeling again of having trouble keeping up, which I hadn't had in a while. I remember when I first got started in my career, I felt like I was constantly scribbling, trying to learn about all these things. And while I'm not suggesting I'd gotten to the point where I knew everything, I had known enough where I found myself at the whiteboard more often than I found myself asking questions and trying to learn and things like that. And so I, I said to myself, well, Google would be a place where I would have trouble keeping up. And se- And separately, I wanted to learn about managing systems at scale, knowing more and more about distributed systems, which is the lifeblood of of Google, and they've had to push the boundaries on things. So that's why I went there. Uh, I started out in the storage organization, way at the bottom, where all the bits are stored. So all the information that Google has that you could imagine, like Gmail attachments and emails and search results or, or search queries and things like that and photos and cloud data, all that stuff is stored in the same systems way at the bottom. And so I got to manage the storage efficiency organization, which was responsible for coming up with creative engineering approaches, whether from a planning perspective or a technical perspective, that would allow Google to save as much money as possible on their storage spend. And the thing that was great about it is I got to work with some really, really great people that were experts in the space. And storage is a space where a lot of distributed systems knowledge has, has emerged from NoSQL databases. All those things were, uh, were pioneered at Google. So I got to learn about Bigtable, which was the first NoSQL database that basically has, has ever existed. I got to learn about Spanner, which is Google's strongly consistent inter-region relational database, which basically offers the dream properties that you wish you had in a relational database years ago. Got to learn about the distributed file system. So a lot of technical learnings. And then in addition, I got to work with a lot of the different groups, you know, cloud, Gmail, all these folks. And then finally, I 
worked with some individuals whose whose knowledge and experience was just mind blowing for me. So yeah, it was a great great ride. In that role, I also spun up a team and um, managed that team to to build a system to combat capacity stockouts for Google Cloud. So the stockout is just a metaphor: is if you go to this, if you go to a corner store and you're looking for a bag of Doritos and the Doritos aren't there, they're stocked out. You're pretty disappointed, right? Well, you're even more disappointed if you're a cloud customer and you ask for a VM of a reasonable shape in a certain geography and it's not there. That's something that you're going to be very disappointed about because it can break your business. So these stockouts were hurting Google Cloud and we uh, spun up a system and uh, worked on a system and got it out there that that helped to combat those stockouts and informed their capacity planning. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, I worked on the... Uh, Cloud observability platform, logs, metrics, all the things that engineers need in order to run and scale their systems. I was responsible for the, the data ingestion aspects of that. And um, it was it was really high impact, a lot of fun. Um, you know, it, it was interesting to, to work on products where if you made a good move or a bad move, you know, it would affect, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers across most businesses that you can name. Very high impact, a lot of fun, got to work with. A lot of great people. What makes a good engineering manager? Oh, that's a good question. I think the, f- the, the first thing is that they have to see themselves in, in service of the engineers and business outcomes. So when people ask me what my job is as a leader, and, that, and I think that's irrespective of whether you're a VP or a director or an engineer manager, all of which you know I've been at different points, is my job is to to get the right business outcomes while helping you to do your very best work. And I don't stack rank them. I try to make sure that they go together. So if I'm getting great results, but I'm not growing the engineers or the other leaders on my team, because I think this is a question about leadership and management in general. If I'm getting results, but not growing the people on my team, I consider myself to be failing. If I'm growing my people, but I'm not getting business results, I consider myself to be failing. Uh, and so I have to make sure that I can do both. Now that said, I've never worked in a nonprofit area, so I think of you know I think of business results. But for the most part, what that means is I have to be conscious. Uh, you know, for example, when I line up projects or or you know programs for people to focus on, I'm ideally I'm always doing something that will that will help the business. I'll never encourage doing something that isn't in service of the business. I don't, I've never worked at a research university. I don't plan to. Me either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's, I also, when I also think about the, um, who should work on what I think about the, the business needs, a person's strengths and a person's interests and the business need alignment has to be there, but a person's strengths and a person's interests, there's hopefully material overlap, but they're not always the same thing. So I might be very strong at, you know, writing Java code, but my interest is, you know, I want to build world-class machine learning um, models. Well, if I don't have that need on that team, you know, your your interests aren't going to be well-served. But I, ideally, you have other interests that, that overlap with your um, strengths. But sometimes you ask people, hey, can you take one for the team here? You're really great at X, even though you're not excited about doing it. And then in other cases, if you can accept a little bit of risk on a project, then you'll go out of your way to make sure that somebody gets to learn on that project. They get to learn a new skill set that they're excited about. So 
they're constant trade-offs that you have to make to make sure that you're getting business results and helping people to grow. Those are the things I think about most anyway. Yeah. I mean, those are great things. How do you do both well? Like, How, how do you do both the business outcomes and making sure that the people have these needs and strengths and interest all aligned? Like, how do you do that really well? It's, it's hard. Um, I don't claim to have a magic algorithm, but I think the most, the thing that helps the most is I demonstrate to people that I care about them as individuals. And that's usually the thing that comes across most when I leave a place and people say, Hey, what was it like to, jo- to work with Joe? They'll usually, he really cares about people. And, and I, it's not like I wake up and focus on that per se, but I think that through the actions I take, I, I demonstrate that I, that I do care about them. And when you care about somebody, it tends to enable trust and trust, you know, unlocks a, a lot of things, you know, accelerating business results, people being willing to go the extra mile. So, and then the other, another thing that supports it is I'm very transparent, uh, or I try to be about, uh, decisions. So, if I have to make a tough call about something for an organization, whether large or small, if it's a non-trivial decision, not only will I, I'll consult with a lot of people, but if it's my decision to make, I'll make the decision, but then I try to spend a decent amount of time explaining the why. And so even if people don't, might not agree with the logic, at least they understand where you're coming from. So I want to get your insight on this when you were talking about caring about people and and leading them. So I actually had a conversation, I think last week with one of my directors and we were discussing this idea of, I was asking about his individual contributors and, and all of that. And I had asked him something, I think along the lines of, well, yeah, like which person on your team is a morning person or like what, you know, who, who wakes up early or who's the person that's like the night owl and stuff like that. And, you know, he said something along the lines of, well, that doesn't really, you know, matter. Like we just focus on, in our one-on-ones, we just focus on their metrics and like if they're hitting their goals and things like that. And I said, well, I heard this one speaker and personal development one time say, the idea that you can manage or lead somebody without knowing who they are and caring for them is, is a myth. Like you have to know who they are and care for them in order to, to lead them. And so I was just giving him examples and like talking with him about this, I felt like I was kind of fishing around because the the problem is that it's not a science. Because if I say like, get to know them, it's not like you can, well, some people might take that as like, and you know, let's have a meeting and all of a sudden start interrogating them. It's it's, it's this really weird. Yeah. 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 What are your kids' names? Yeah. 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 So how do you, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but, but how would you go about explaining to a, to a new leader, how to have a personal relationship with the people you're managing, but not crossing boundaries. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I'm not sure I've ever had to address this directly, but I suppose one of the things that I do is when people are trying to decide whether they want to go into management, I try to pressure test the why. And so when I went into management, I just fell ass backwards into it. You know what I mean? You you do good on a, when you start out, you know, you write code, you build systems, you do good at that. You get responsibility for a larger system. Before you know it, you're leading others in a technical fashion. And then before you know it, people are like, hey, you want to manage people? And it just seems like, okay, that's the next rung on the ladder. Let me try that. 
But that's usually not a great recipe for success. But the truth is that a, a lot of us, that's how we get started. And in hindsight, you look back and you realize, wow, I've made a lot of mistakes, but I'm glad that somebody gave me the opportunity to try that. But ultimately, when somebody's, somebody says, oh, I want to be a manager or I want to lead larger teams or you know whatever, whatever the thing may be, I try to tease apart the why. And so... If you ask, you know, if you say, if you try, you try to tease apart, like, what are your motivations? You know, well, hey, what do you think this is going to look like? Oh, well, you know, I'll get to call the shots, and um, you know, obviously, there's there's elements of um, being a manager is, a, you know, it, generally a manager has to be a leader. A leader does not have to be a manager, but there are parts of being a manager if you've never done it before that might seem attractive. Oh, they got to make the call on X or. Oh, they got to, you know, set somebody's performance review rating, and that has a lot of impact. But the truth is, most of the time, the job of a of a manager isn't it isn't always directly rewarding. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it that's thankless. There's you know, you got to approve expense reports and timesheets and um, and and deal with all kinds of issues between um, people in an organization, help deal with them without anybody ever knowing. It's a fairly thankless job a lot of the time. Um, but the thing that makes a difference for me is if I can affect somebody's life positively, if I can in some sense be of service, that, that gives me a personal reward. I find that rewarding. And it doesn't have to be you know, plastered on a newspaper, the the reward is actually, for me, is actually private. Uh, the fact that I was able to make a small difference in somebody's life. And so I try to tease apart the why and find out if there's an element of wanting to be of service in what they want to do. And if I can't find that element of wanting to be of service, that is enabling other people, helping them to grow, unlocking business results, um, helping people to overcome their challenges and connect better with others. If I can't find that servant leadership aspect, then I, I usually call that out in people and say, look, I'm not seeing that. And, and my experience is that's the foundation of, of good leadership. Uh, so it doesn't mean that I won't support you in becoming a manager, but I think that th that's a component that I, um, that I think is an important part and that you would either need to bring to the table or grow in the direction of wanting to develop that. And you can tell so much by how they react to that advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, whoa, hey, I don't want... It's like, I don't want to fill out TPS reports. Yeah. There, you know, there's all kinds of things that come with being a manager that aren't always fun. And so when you paint the picture of what it looks like, I would say half the people walk away from it. You do have to do a little bit of a reverse sell because I think that it's different than a lot of people realize. Maybe in the command and control days, which I've never lived in, it was more fun because you had, you know, direct power, you could, you know, control all the things, but that's just not real life, at least not in the space of building software. You know, you've got brilliant people, people that are smarter than you, and you're trying to figure out, okay, how can I help them to succeed without getting in their way? Uh, you know, and it's tricky business. It's the story of my life, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you talk about wanting to be of service, you you've mentioned that a, a number of times. Does this extend who you are as a person? Does this extend outside of your professional career? Like the people in your life outside of work would probably similarly describe you as the people at work as far as your I, I think so. I, I think that um I'm an introvert and so I um my social life is 
is pretty contained and pretty simple, and it's mostly oriented around my uh, wife and kids. But when I think about my extended family or old friends and things like that, yeah, I think it comes yeah. across. I've got uh, three kids between oh, wow. ages, a uh, daughter who's uh, five, a son who's four, and a son who's seven months. So when you talk about social life, I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, don't yeah. feel, everyone's an introvert when you, have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or everyone has a low social life when you have children. It's like, that is, that's my crew. It's my, my, my wife and my kids. They're like, yeah. are the center of my universe. So yeah, I, yeah. I have four myself going from oh, nice. 19 down to 12. And um, yeah, three kids is around when the discrimination kicks in. Yeah. That's when the people start looking at you funny. Or, we, you, you know, if you go to visit somebody, hey, I'm going to pop by. And then you get a pause. And they're like, you bringing the kids? Yeah. <laughs> uh, where somehow one is easy, two is cute, three is like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Make a reservation <laughs> in advance before you come by. Yeah, we have several friends who have five. And my parents, they came from families of seven. You know, they were one of seven. And so it's amazing to me how I go around in life. And I, you know, a lot of the, we got a lot of 20 somethings, early 30s people that work at, at our uh, media company. And, and I think I'm the only, I think I'm the only one that has kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I go around and I meet, run into different people like that, that don't have kids. And I mean, not, not to let the conversation go into a, a negative way, but it seems like a, a fairly selfish reason is why. Like, and, and I'm not saying that that's good or bad, uh, but the, I wish I could somehow extend to them the experience of, yeah, you're going to be giving up your time and you're going to be giving up a lot, but I believe you're going to gain more than you give up through the experience. Yeah, and I, a person I always use having kids as an example of where like we have we really have two systems of thinking our our you know figuratively our head and our heart kids are not logical having kids <laughs> is not is not a logical <laughs> investment so for people that are hyper logical having kids makes very little sense but it's the heart thing it's it's kind of somehow wanting to i don't know it's like once you start to take care of them and they develop their little personalities it, yeah it changes your life in huge ways, in ways that you can't communicate to people who haven't done it before. And it's not all roses, right? But, oh, no, no. But it's, um, there's, it's like a, your, your whole worldview changes. What's most important to you and the definition of fun um, yeah. changes, you know? For sure. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> I spent money on a fence the other day. <laughs> like, well, where, how did I get here in life? <laughs> Yeah. And I was excited about the different fence I picked out and all of that. I was, I was like, this is the progression of life, you know? Yeah. What are you reading? You said you like to read a lot. What type of stuff are you reading? Oh, yeah, I read a lot of stuff. I, I have a reading sort of ritual, I guess, where I get up, you know, semi-early, at least for me, given the way that I'm wired. I get up around 6.30, eat breakfast, and then I have my reading ritual in the morning. I sort of read a few spiritual books, a few, sorry, but they're like one-pagers, like things that they're, they can serve as devotionals. Uh -huh. And so I'll, I'll, I'll flip through a few pages that are of a spiritual nature, a few that are of like a business nature, and then what, some that are like of a ethical nature. That takes mm -hmm. like a half hour. But that's like me, like, I think it's the equivalent of people doing their meditation or sitting in a, a bathtub of ice cubes or whatever <laughs> other people do to start their day. And um, after that, I, I usually do a, a longer, like, uh, technical reading 
depending on what I'm interested in, or if I'm in a spot where I have to learn about something at work to be effective, which is most of the time I find like I have to read voraciously to even keep up with the pace of technology change, especially given the type of work that I do. I've been, you know, in, in um, infrastructure and platforms and things like that. So, but the, the good thing is like, if I'm excited about what I'm doing, it's not, I, it doesn't feel at all like, like work. Um, so I don't know, some of the things that I'm thinking about at the moment technically are, um, you know, I, I happen to think are, are the connectivity story between services in a heterogeneous environment, like where if you have Kubernetes and VMs and Google Cloud and AWS, you know, this is like an example of how things were at Twilio. The connectivity story between services is such a mess. It's very, very complicated and it's getting more and more complicated. So th that's an example of something that I've been reading a lot about lately. What are you learning in the spiritual content? At the moment, I, I so I was, I was raised Catholic, but I'm not, you know, a practicing Catholic, but I've drifted into other things over time. Like I find that like Jewish ethics, for example, is a, is a space that I like a lot. And I, I, it's not even a religious orientation for me. I don't consider myself to be particularly religious. It's more, it's very methodical and rich in all the history around how the rabbis came to conclusions around the right way to treat one another. And the thing that I like about it is it doesn't just it doesn't just give you the answer. It shows you the debate over time. Oh, this rabbi said this, this rabbi said that. And, and then in the end, um, there isn't a whole lot of like there there are um some agreements on this is considered the authoritative ruling, but you somebody can come along later and always displace it in theory. So there's a lot of debate around the the right way to live. And I, I find that pretty interesting. And then another thing that I've been reading a lot um, lately is centered around Stoicism. So Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, for example, are some of the foundational writers in Stoicism. And I find like that's that's helping me a bit because there's Stoicism is one of its found foundational viewpoints is, hey, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to go on and you can't change it. Get used to to feeling it, accepting it, and then having to move on. And when I think about it, like I, I think about like the serenity prayer, for example. That's what, exactly what I was yeah, just yeah. thinking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Even if you put the G word aside, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, if that's not a description of what you're trying to do all day, every day, I don't know what it is because our unhappiness is rooted in like things aren't the way that I want. I've never experienced things being the way that I want. <laughs> there are only degrees of dissatisfaction. And so, but, but within there, there's, um, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Obviously there've been times where I've been very happy, but, but within there, you have to be careful around, well, can I change this or not? And if I can change it, like what's the risk return curve, you know, just because I can change, it doesn't mean I should. So for example, I've had situations where, I've, uh, like in sports, I've thought about, you know, I'm not excited about how my boys are getting along with certain people in, in sports, but they're getting older and I can't be a, like helicopter dad or something like that. They, you know, if I, if I try to get involved with, um, you know, their stock price and how they're perceived by people that can, 
you know, control their playtime and things like that, it, it'll just hurt. So I have to step back and actually like let things be. And then other times I have to have the courage to, you know, to make a change. Most of the time that's in my own behavior, you know? So yeah, that long story short, stoicism is one of the things that I'm reading a lot in right now. Do you ever struggle with like being content? Yeah. 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 I'm very introspective. You know, if you, if you're, if you're introspective and if you're a realist, sometimes, you know, the, the world doesn't always work the way that you want. And, um, most of the time it's, it isn't so easy to accept it. Um, that's why I'm reading about it. And it's like, oh, can I get good at this? <laughs> because I'm definitely not good at it right now. Yeah. I was struggling with it, um, a little bit over the past year or two, like things got really, really good. And I got, concerned. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got mean. concerned because I'm like, yeah. what's going on? Like I'm always battling. Like since the day I showed up here on this planet, like I've been battling and there is just difficulty after difficulty. And I'll, right now I'm just in this calm sea and I'm like, I'm not equipped for that. Like I'm a wartime general. I'm not equipped yeah, for yeah. peacetime. Yeah. And but while you're in war, you you justify it through achieving peace. <laughs> so it's this weird sort of uh, thing that I struggle with. And then I go, okay, I'm learning right now. I'm 35, just to give you an example of where I'm at in life. But I'm I'm learning right now this sort of ebb and flow or balance of being content, but also doing some challenging stuff or having some challenge. Like rather than it just being all chaos all the time, trying to, you know, gas for air. Now I'm like, all right, I'm going to kind of be on this lake, but I'm also going to have some fun. And, 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 and that is not something that is you do at once. It's something that you just constantly work towards. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. You know, that feeling of like, whoa, I, you know, lightning hasn't struck in a while. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> Um, especially if, you know, you've experienced a uh, tragedy in your life. Um, I mean, I, I know, uh, the, tra I read about some of the tragedy that, that you experienced is awful, awful. And I think about, you know, we've all, we all have our experiences. One of my toughest experiences was my youngest sister was killed in a car accident. She was 27 years old. She was months away from her wedding date. And it was just like, like that, you know, and, um, and there are no, for me personally, there are no religious things that help me with that. We had to, you know, I had to work through that and in some sense work towards acceptance of like, this is the reality and, and look back at all the great times that we did have, you know, but then like you start, if you have enough of those things in your life, you start to tell your story in terms of like, well, this was phase one and phase one was rooted around this tragedy. And then phase uh -huh. two is rooted around this tragedy and phase three is root. And that's a, like a, not a good way to think about life. And for me, I, um, I'm trying to change that, you know, and, and I, I, I will disagree with you for myself. So I find it very empowering to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I use it all the time. Now that's just, you know, me. Uh, but, but what I have found is things like, you know, holding my mom's hand as she passed away or getting hit by a car when I was 12 and being in a wheelchair for a year or, you know, all, all of these other difficult experiences that I've had. I keep them close to me. Like I'm not like holding on in pain, right? Like I've, I've, I've worked through it all. And now I'm just looking at it logically is, you know, they, they're important lessons to me and they, 
they remind me that no matter how hard, let me give you an example. I run a business, right? I'm an entrepreneur. Oh. Like, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in the marketplace right now. Hence, you know, your job movement. And, and so like, there's a lot of, a lot of waves going on right now. And then I'll, I'll notice myself getting a little bit like caught up in that. And then I'll just, you know, be laying down at night. My wife and I pray before we go to bed. And, and that's, how does that actually look? It essentially looks like us just talking about stuff and, and talking to God. And, uh, what happens is I realize that, oh, that doesn't matter. Like <laughs> that's not nearly as hard as like letting your mom pass away in sure. your arms. Like what a, a down quarter? Well, we're actually doing well this quarter, but like a quarter with turmoil in the marketplace. I'm like, see, so it, it kind of helps me set things in perspective. Or when I'm going to do something difficult, I was like, yeah, I was like, I've been hit by a car and had to learn how to walk again. Like this isn't this is so easy compared to that. And so that's how I I will use it. But I I do agree it. We don't know each other super well, right? We're meeting each other for the first time, but there is definitely some fine nuance into people holding on and in, in with pain and, and using tragedy, letting tragedy affect their lives versus like taking it and owning it and using it as a tool of power. Yeah. So all, all the things that you said, I a I agree with, and b I relate to. What I meant was more like I don't want to define my life in terms of it. Um, oh, okay. And, yeah. and so it, it's very, it, and it's very easy, I think, on some level for me to do that. It's so like, oh, that was my down period because of X, and that was my down period because of Y. But yeah, I, I think that tragedy brings, um, brings meaning to your life. You know, there, you, you have to have a little rain in order to appreciate the sunshine. And I look back on the moments that I had with my sister, with other people that that I've lost and they're now profound. I can look back on the, those positive moments with like profound joy uh, when before they were just, just things that happened. And uh, yeah, they, I, on a comparative basis, I, I will occasionally think about those things to derive strength from too. Like, you know, how's the, how's the presentation go or what are my quarterly results look like with how did this performance review go? Those things pale in comparison to what it's like to to lose somebody that you love, or what it's like to have some other senseless tragedy hit you. There's a um, a saying that on their deathbed, nobody ever wished that they spent more time at the office. Yeah. You know, there is. It, I don't think in the end, um, distributed systems are going to matter much when I go to the grave. It's going to be, you know, did I make a difference in somebody's life? I 100% agree. Now, if if you don't like using the tragedies to help sort of define the timeline of your life, what do you use in place of that? You know, I I, I don't know because I, I consciously it's not as if I've ever told my story end to end. But I suppose that um, you know, like when I think about the birth of my kids is an uh-huh. example of something that changed my life in a positive way. When I think Ooh, about yeah what it was like to learn to play music, what it was like to, to go to college and, you know, surrounded by people that, you know, were pretty wealthy. And I, you know, came from a more a working class background and, and to be, I was, I think I was able to appreciate like the things that were in front of me because of that. Like the idea that I could just go study whatever I want and that my dad would be okay with it. Like, you know, my dad was a Philly cop and 
I was one of five kids, one of five or eight, depending on how you count. And, and it blew my mind that he even paid for me to go to school. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is not a cheap school, but I had a, um, a full scholarship to go to St. Joe's, which is also in the Philadelphia area. And he didn't, he said, pick whichever one you want. He didn't try to twist my arm one way or the other. I'm not sure I would have had the strength to do that. But he did tell me years later, like every now and then when times were tough, I would drive and park next to St. Joe's and say, Joe could have gone there for free. <laughs> um, and, and so, but like, I don't know, they, like those are some, you know, some of the, some of the positive things. And like my boys playing lacrosse, like I, I played lacrosse in high school and I, I played ever to some degree, mostly informally, every sport that you could imagine. And to me, lacrosse was just like no other sport. I just loved it. And so I taught my boys how to play and now they, they love it, you know, and they don't love it because, um, because I loved it, but they love it because they've, they figured it out that it's great for them to watch them play, to play together on the same team. They're, you know, one of them is on JV, one of them's on varsity, but they're like warriors out there. It's a great thing, you know? So what I, I guess what I'm getting at is finding, you know, in addition to the valleys, calling out the peaks as well, when I think about my life. No, that's that's exactly what I was. I'm ta- I take notes, by the way. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm looking down, but that's exactly what I was thinking as you were as you were talking. Is you know, I made made a little list of the positive birth of kids, learning to play music, college, and then you know, you talk about the the more difficult moments of losing your sister and marrying and, my wife and marrying Don't your wife. To, yep. Sorry. We'll edit this so that I <laughs> put that in first in case you watch. No, seriously, <laughs> seriously though, let me make a, let me make a plug for my wife. Really. Okay. Um, like to have somebody that sees you and like really sees you and doesn't feel like you're a project that has potential. It's like, no, she sees me as I am and is okay with me. And in fact, you know, more than tolerates me, actually likes me, actually loves me. I'm like, <laughs> like, that's a great feeling. That's a great feeling. Cause you don't always get that in life. You know, usually, um, you know, usually you always get the sense, whether it's self-imposed or coming from other people, it's like, well, you do this okay, but you don't really do that. And um, I don't feel that way with my wife. You know, she she likes me the way that I am. So, you know, I've managed to fool her, but hey, I'll take it. So. Yeah. We are at that point now. We've been together for 10 years. I'd say dating phase was was pretty good. Like best friends, having kids, the first three years of having our first kid was like super taxing. I was also starting the business then. But for the past three or four years, I can honestly say without without exaggerating that we are best friends. And I actually told her last night, <laughs> we're going to do real talk right now, Joe. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, uh, one of my neighbors was talking about this we have a chicken coop. Uh, don't worry, I, I fully confidential and I charge reasonable rates. So. Oh, I yeah. love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said that uh, we had this chicken coop. We were debating to get rid of it and get like a different chicken coop because of X, Y, or Z or whatever. And we had had this conversation about five months ago. Nothing had happened. And then my neighbor was talking to me. He's like, yeah, you know, we were really interested in that, in that chicken coop. And they had done a favor for me. And I was like, well, yeah, you can have it. Because in my head, it was going to cost us like five, 600 bucks to get a dumpster out there to break it up and destroy it and like get rid of it. Right. So I was like, oh, we're so lucky because now I got this person who's going to take it for free and it's going to save us money. And then I go in and I tell her and she was like super, super frustrated at me for like not talking with her about it. And so anyways, we were, we're talking at night before we, we go to bed and I said, you know what? I go, we're kind of blessed because like the biggest problem in our relationship is that I gave away a chicken coop that you wanted to sell on Facebook marketplace. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I step back, it's, uh, you know, it's a gift to to have found somebody that, that sees me. And we're, yeah, we're very happy. And uh, like any other marriage, we've had our ups and downs. But, you know, having the kids and, and spending time one in, with one another, uh, it's, it's a gift. The ups and downs, we talked about the positives and the overcoming the difficulty. Is it possible that those are all different experiences we can draw on and we need different ones at different times? Like it's not always you, like for example, if I'm in a really difficult moment, you know, the birth of my kids is great, but a moment where I overcame an incredible amount of difficulty is actually the one I would probably want to pull up to handle with that. Or maybe when I'm feeling like I don't have a lot or that I want too much, maybe then I can connect back to the birth of my kids and remind me the material things don't matter. And so we kind of use these different experiences uh, like to help you get through the the lows and the highs yeah definitely they're almost like cards or pictures that you put in your back pocket and you pull out the right one depending on on context and and it's not just personal stuff it's also professional because obviously i I personally i think we grow from experiences um if we reflect upon them if we have experiences but we don't reflect upon them um then we don't tend to learn as much, and you can learn a certain amount from um, from books and blogs and talks and things like that. But in the end, you have to experience your own things. And yeah, so it's I can sometimes feel the similarity between something potentially going wrong in a in a project or a work setting. It's like, oh, this feels like you know when this happened ten years ago in this other project, you know. What did I do then that helped me to succeed? Or what did I do then that caused me to fail that I don't want to repeat? But yeah, it's it's like those experiences. They're all sort of uh, like baseball cards or something. You have to be you have to find the right one and take them out to help you in that context. Beautifully said. Uh, I'm watching the time here. Is it cool if we do some sort of like rapid fire questions from the audience? We we've already sourced some questions about like oh, trust yeah. and commitment and things sure, like yeah, that go for, it. for leading yeah. tech teams. Okay, cool. Uh, let's say day one as a tech leader, you start fresh new company. What's the first action that you'd take to start building trust with your team? Sit down, talk to them one-on-one and ask about their life, ask about their background, ask about what they're hoping to get out of this job, try and trying to get a sense of the, the, the type of work that they, that they like, that they hate. What do they like or not like about the environment? What are some of the things that they would change? So in some sense, it's like trying to get to know them as people can get a hook on their morale and then um, how they see their career growth, how they see the company. Uh, Those are, it's sort of, I guess I'm a little bit formulaic about that. That's what I do every single time that I step into a new role is I start with one-on-ones, people on my team. What are some effective communication strategies for building trust and how can leaders ensure that their messages are being received accurately? Hmm. So trust sort of, there, there's a lot of different contexts for trust. If there's trust between two people, that's one flavor of trust. I think you, there's also trust between yourself and your higher self. That's almost like governing your actions and, and reflecting. But it sounds to me like this is a question maybe about trust between a leader and their collective organization. I think that some of the things that have helped me is be transparent. Like people, we're all big kids. People know when you're, when, you know, when you're saying fluff. Now there are some times when as a leader, 
you can't say certain things. Like, for example, in the face of a layoff, there's only so many things that you can say. Um, and none of those things are going to make people feel good. But when I think of, um, like, at the, the first round of layoffs at, at Twilio, you know, the, the layoffs hit. They were a big surprise to everybody, including me. And there was just silence, absolute silence. I mean, every, like, the, there was, you know, my boss, for example, hadn't said anything. And, and I think, like, the CEO hadn't said anything. And I, and I put myself in their shoes. Um, and I, I think that's the first part is put yourself in the other person's shoes. And like, what are people feeling right now? It occurred to me that like, it reminded me, it felt like grief. It felt to me like a little bit like grief and, you know, like the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. And, and what I did was I, I pulled everyone together and only 15 minutes and I didn't turn it into an ask me anything thing. I just wanted to do like a really short um, conversation with them. And I just tried to call out that like, Hey, this is awful. They're like, all, all I can do is relate, uh, to your pain. It's painful for me. This is awful. I'm feeling all kinds of things like, like, you know, survivor's guilt in a sense. What, why them and not me? Some people that got laid off were great at their job. I'm bouncing back and forth between like shock and acceptance so these were the kind of the things that I talked about and that we should like the best thing to do, I think is support those people that were laid off because if you're feeling bad, imagine how they feel. And then also have patience with one another, because I think different people are going to move through the, the rough phases at different times. Within a week, some people are like, Hey, let's go. It's all business. And then other people are still having a tough time with it. Um, you know, a month later, and so having patience with your, uh, with your colleagues. So basically, I guess in summary, like trying to communicate from a point of view of empathy that you, that you hear people, that you see people, trying to be transparent. Uh, those are some of the things that I did. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear, discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.